Welcome back, everyone, to another brand new episode of the What the Niche podcast. And as always, I am your host, Andrew Morris. Now, before we dive into today's show, I have a couple quick announcements for you. First, I am currently working on revamping my website, and I'd like to direct all my listeners to whatthenitch.net to see those changes and to check out the previous episodes and some of my merch, which you'll find there as well. Second, please go check out the newest show on the What the Podcast Network called What the Skit. It's a sketch comedy show which features oddball humor from even stranger people, but it will likely put a smile on your face. That's all the announcements I have for this week. Let's get right into this week's episode. In this week's episode, we will be reeling our way into the spectacular world of photography and filmmaking. Everybody thinks the director is purely an... uh, Everybody thinks the directing is an exercise of control. And that's a myth that we enthrone, because of course the great legend is Eric von Stroheim did 120 takes, uh, Orson Welles knew everything, blah, blah, blah. But... I can tell you in reality, the directing, no matter who you are, is the art of orchestrating uh, accidents. You know, because of course you prepare. Of course I color code and design the movie to a T. Of course all that happens. But every day you're gonna get 30 curveballs. The sun is setting, the actor twists his ankle, the car crashed. Whatever it is, and you cannot say, oh, well, because the day cost between twenty-five to $125,000, you know? So you cannot stop. And, and, uh, and, and you need to take what is there and make it work, you know? Uh, and, and, uh, and I think uh, that part then is combined with the fact that as a childlike imagination, you need to be open to see what is right about it. You know, let me put it another way. If an actor acts and you have a, only one idea of how the scene should be, the actor is going to come with great colors. He's going to put them on the table, and you're not going to see any of those colors. You're just going to see red, because that's what you wanted. And maybe green is better. You can say to the actor, try this other way, and if it's the right way and it's your way, you insist. But you have to be open. And the same is true of every accident you may encounter. The, there is a great Zen saying that says, the obstacle is the path. And it's absolutely true for a director. Whatever you see as the obstacle is yelling at you. This is the way to a better solution. So an obstacle is only a path that has been looked at wrong. You know, and I think that's, that's a thing that we do in our craft that we don't talk about enough. All of my life, uh, when I approach a, a new project, and I'm 50, 50 years old, and I've done now, I don't know how many movies as producer, director, blah, blah, blah. And I still have the same emotion when I go into a project, I go, how much am I willing to lose to do that image? And there's always one or two images in every project that you would mortgage your house, sell your car, give everything you have to, to make sure that image comes. Uh, to save uh, what you go through doesn't matter if they uh, they give you X amount of time but you need to always protect the images that are crucial so there's always an image that makes you say uh, I'm willing to forsake everything I have in life to protect a magical piece of escapism a time machine and a microscope. A means to feel every emotion. A vessel to tackle every adventure. Film has long been my obsession and my therapy. Cold winter nights spent in solitude popping in one tape after another. Fuzzy glow of the tube painting the walls with its bioluminescence 
and eyes speckled with the colors of imagination. The real world filled with its limits and stark realities can be left at the ticket counter. Each salty piece of nostalgia accompanying every minute of the cinematic tale, washed down with the refreshing introductions to new worlds and new characters. Every venture into the immaculately constructed story creating an appreciation for those grand conductors. The ones who laid the tracks for every grandiose journey. The ones who steer the ship through every silver screen sea. The ones who land the plane amidst every theatrical excursion. Those manning the camera acting as wizards behind the curtain wielding the power to control an audience. We've likely all fallen under their directorial spells at one point or another. A general of the combination of these grand artistic forces. Powers of the varying senses coalesce to create experiences which are unrivaled. The thrums of the music, performances filled with great emotion. Images magnificent in their scope come together with a specific purpose to move you, to inspire you, to amuse you, or simply to entertain you. My life and many others have likely been impacted by these explorations of moving pictures. And for years, I've shouted my praises from dimly lit theaters, cozy couches, or gravel-laden drive-ins. But let me say it now for all you commanders of the real. I appreciate your gifts to the world, and I will be there for another 100,000 more glittering images you may wish to share. That brings me to today's guest. His name is Steve Squall, and he is a writer, photographer, filmmaker, and all-around talented artist. During our conversation, we discussed Steve's love for film and how he started from meager beginnings, splicing videotapes together, which were his first forays into the cinematic world. We also talked about Steve's inspirations for capturing images and manning a camera, which included some of the usual suspects like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, and works from Quentin Tarantino. But Steve also said that the world simply inspires everything he does. Overall, I found our conversation to be lighthearted and hilarious. Steve is an incredibly humble and talented human, and I hope you enjoy our chat. All right, my name is Steve, Steve Squall, Captain Stephen Danger Squall. Um, I'm a photographer and uh, and a filmmaker. And I'm also a phenomenal lover. I just want that, <laughs> I want that on record, like, I want that out in the world. He was willing to show me, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know that I wanted to take that down. My, my wife can vouch for that. <laughs> she can vouch it. Fair enough. Um, well, I've known you since high school. It's interesting we were talking about this, because uh, uh, behind the curtain, it's not his real last name. Uh, I won't even give him the real last name unless he wants to. Oh, we're not going to. No, we're <laughs> going to keep that a secret. That's it's like you know, there's there, there are certain government agencies that are looking for are looking for me. And I'd rather keep my real name a secret. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, he he has been on the uh, Epstein Island. We did discuss that as well. Twice did not participate though. <laughs> He's a uh, uh, loving spectator. I was there as an observer. <laughs> but uh, we talked about that, and it's interesting to see how people change over time. Um, I would have never, you know, because you 
you were somebody who I knew kind of like peripherally uh, in high school. Like we knew of each other. We've always like known. It's like, oh, hey, that's Steven. Yeah. But um, I would have never pegged you as, I bet that is going to be a filmmaker someday, uh, especially a really solid filmmaker. Um, your, your short uh, Mujo. 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 Uh, it's just brilliantly shot. It, it just really is. I was really floored by it. Uh, when you see, you often, at least through the case for me, sometimes when you see people on a local level, uh, you're like, yeah, my friend made a movie. And you, I kind of go into it with low expectations. Right, you're like, oh, you're like oh, okay. I better be ready to lie. Right. <laughs> I just right. like it. It was great. Right. Um, but see, now that you've admitted that, how do I know that you're not lying to me about how much that's they, true how much that you like it just because like I'm on the podcast now and now and it's true so so I am you, slow jerking you just a little yeah yeah, yeah, you've, yeah. Uh, you've pulled the wool back from over my eyes <laughs> but luckily luckily I, I don't have to do that and I, I can say that with um with real candor like it was really solid well thank you very much I told my roommate Sean Phipps who we went to high school with as well like as soon as he got home I was like dude this shit's on Amazon he'd watch it I was like you remember so and so from high school he's like yeah I heard that he's like I saw that he's friends with you on Facebook he's like I'll check it out I was like it's on Amazon so you can sit your happy ass on the couch yeah yeah press play and it's fucking easy and uh, he, he loved it too he's like man that was pretty fucking good yeah, so, that's, uh, that's one thing with like getting people to watch your stuff is you gotta like keep on them right yeah. it's like hey you should watch this like, yeah I'll watch it and then they like, never get around to watching it so it's, you gotta I go through this thing all the time where I'm like constantly like posting about shit I'm like posting about the same shit like hey watch my thing watch my thing watch my thing and I'm like ah people gotta be getting tired of seeing this but then I meet people all the time that like I'm close with like even on like Facebook and shit and they're like they're like hey did you ever put that uh, short out that you were working on I was like yeah I put it out in July and I posted about it three times a day for like six <laughs> fucking months and they're like oh I never saw anything about it oh that's weird yeah well they might not be wrong though oh I know because they're the not wrong I know, I know it's the algorithm yeah. that's how it works my buddy calls them the algorithmic overlords yeah uh, Facebook <laughs> yeah. and Instagram right. I was like you need to coin that that's pretty good and uh yeah, so they may be missing it, and I get it because I mean I do the same shit with the podcast, and I had one person get a little bit out of shape about it. And I was like, "All right, man, like, could you please stop tagging me in this?" I was like, "I wanted to kind of put him on blast because he's right. in a band, and he would tag me in all his band shit." Right, and right, like, right. Just because you're not into podcasts, don't like be a dick about it. So wait, he's in a band, and he's he was on the podcast. No, he wasn't on the podcast, but I kept tagging a bunch of people that I thought would like different oh, podcasts. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. You know, yeah. so I had done one about music, and I was like, he'll like this one, and then I'd done another one of something he was into, and I would tag him. Not like out of like, you know, I'm just going to blow up the world with the tags for this thing that I'm doing. Right, right. You know, it's like, no, this is a thing that you would probably be into. Right. So check it out. Yeah. And... So I was like, all right, man, okay. So I get it, the woes of that. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't want to be overbearing with promoting yourself because you're excited about it. Right. You worked your ass right. off. But you but you have to be. Like, yeah. you're, like you're forced to be. Otherwise, nobody's ever going to see it. Put it out there once, and then it just it dies. Yeah, the grind is tough. Yeah, much like the grind is going on upstairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Tim Tim's working in his studio upstairs. Fair enough. He's making a replica of the... Uh, of the crucifixion of Christ. Are you serious? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I mean, I suppose that's all right. Um, But yeah, like you were saying earlier, you said you never would pick me like as a, as like a filmmaker, like back in high school. No, I I would not have either. (laughs) Like like, I had no fucking clue that I would ever, like I always kind of wanted to like make a movie or make a short or make something, you know, some sort of motion picture, some sort of moving story. And uh, I just thought that, like, it, that was just so far out of the realm of possibility that, like, oh my God, I should just, I should just not even think about, not even think about trying to do it, like, seriously. So I would not have paid myself as a filmmaker either. It's kind of, it's surprising to me. It's as surprising to me as it is to anyone else that, that I've done a thing and put it out there. Um, yeah, I think like I mean I made movies with like my cousins, um, you know when I was little, 
or not little, but like when we were teenagers and shit, we'd get like my parents had a video camera and we'd get out there and film things, doing all the cuts like in camera. <laughs> you know, like, so we, yeah, we had to film it in sequence, get all the cuts exactly right in camera. Um, yeah, we uh, our greatest achievement. To your defense, in high school, editing programs would not have been readily available. No, no, you would have. <laughs> um, no, I mean it wasn't digital at all. No. So we were shooting on VHS tapes, and like in yeah, any kind of editing we would have been able to do would have required like a pretty expensive like setup. Or, like, we would have had to done, like, the two VCR thing and, like, you know, like, cut it together that way. But then every time – I don't know if you've ever tried to cut anything with two VCRs, but yeah. every time you make a copy of that tape, like, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, like, it just – the quality gets like worse and worse so by the time you cut something like the third time it just it looks like garbage I mean if that's what you were going for maybe we're trying to we were we wanted it to look great <laughs> <laughs> little did we know right right no we thought we thought we were making the next Star Wars you know <laughs> I mean that's you know I'm the type of person that's like I'm going to set aspirations to the moon, mm-hmm. you know, and if, if, if it falls somewhere short, then I can feel okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't ever try to go into anything half ass. Yeah. I think uh, that's largely what I do is like shoot for the moon and then do get as close as I possibly can to that. Once I realize like what tools I have to work with. Yeah. You know, like even like, like with Mujo, like we started, it started out and like I wrote this script that was about three times, three to four times longer than the actual episode that we put out. And I thought I was like, oh, we're going to get this, like all of this is going to happen within the span of like 15 minutes and we're going to be able to do it all. And then like once we started doing it, I was like, first of all, it's like the first third of this thing is going to be like over 15 minutes. And also the rest of this is going to be a little bit out of reach to, uh, you know, just, just slightly out of reach for the resources that, that I have to work with right now. So we just went ahead and condensed it. Um, and came out, I mean, honestly came out with something like really great. Like I, I never would have thought going into the project that just the first third of the script would have turned out to be the first episode, the entire first episode. Yeah, that's that's something I'm always curious. It's one of the questions that I ask relatively consistently. Um, you've already kind of touched on it a little bit. What changes do you think that you've seen in the film industry since you know you were a wee lad and falling in love with Star Wars back in the day? Yeah, you know? I mean the the industry has like obviously radically changed since since I was a kid. Um, you know, just uh, the, the rise of streaming services alone has been incredibly disruptive to the the way that it that it always used to be. And then the pandemic is killing theaters. Like those theaters are going by. Yeah. Um, but like probably the biggest change I think is just um, the accessibility of like you know, like I said back in the day, like being being able to like make a film or like write and direct a film, you know, with a very small crew in, you know, in and around Louisville, Kentucky. I didn't think that was, that was so far out of the realm of possibilities to me that like, it it just, I mean, it was impossible. Like making a film was was a huge, it required a lot of very expensive equipment, required a lot of crew. Um, but you know, now we're in a space where, I mean, just about anybody can pick up a camera, you know, relatively cheaply and you can shoot things, you can edit things and like, like pretty much anybody can make, can make a film now. Yeah. Um, uh, there was the iPhone commercial that was uh, shot all on the, the iPhone. I think it was the iPhone 8. It was Edgar Wright. Uh, Edgar Wright had went in and shot that really cool snowball fight scene yeah, yeah. Uh, all on iPhones. But what they probably don't tell you is that he, you know, he, he had a crack team of people that right, were right. making films for years. Yeah, he had, a, he had a crew that knew what they were doing. Yeah, and not to mention um, like great lighting. Like, right, right. But either way, you're not wrong. But it is. It's, it's extremely possible. It's extremely accessible 
now. Yeah, uh, and the Apple computers come with video editing software, sound editing software. They're pretty yeah. decent. There are lots of uh, actually the program that we used to um, to edit and color grade Mujo was uh, it's called DaVinci Resolve, and the the basic you can get the basic uh, version of it for free, and that allows you to it allows you to edit. And um, it allows you to edit, do a whole bunch, a whole range of shit, yeah, for um, for nothing, <laughs> you know. Um, Pro Tools, the entry level of Pro Tools, Avid, is fucking free. Right, right. That's crazy. When I first started a band, you know, when I was nineteen. Dude, it was such a pain in the ass to try and record anything. Yeah. It's like you had to be lucky enough to know somebody who wasn't going to charge you out the ass to record anything. And now so many of these these artists just have the opportunity to do these things at home. Do these things on the when they're out. They, they have 4K cameras in their pocket. Right, right. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was the same thing, like, when I got into photography. Like, I was always interested in photography as a kid, but it was it was a very expensive hobby to get into. It was very expensive, and it was way more time-consuming than it is now, you know, having to have all the chemicals for the dark room and, like, your film and the camera itself. They were all expensive, and, like, I wanted to get into it, but my, my family was not a family of means, yeah. Um, so, you know, it was just a little bit out of the realm of possibility, but forget when it was, um, like the, the Nikon released the D40, which was like one of the first, like really affordable, um, like digital SLRs that had like, had like a really great sensor on it. Um, and it was, it, it was cheap enough that I was able to like take out a loan and like get the camera. I got the camera and like one lens and like a couple of memory cards. And I was able to just start like experimenting and messing around. Um, do you think digital has cheapened how people view photography? Do we, do we not see, do we see it as too mass produced because we all have the ability to take a decent photograph? Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it has cheapened, to a certain degree, it's it's cheapened it in people's minds, but I don't think it's actually cheapened the the art of photography. I think really what it's done is just made it, like I said, more accessible to more people. And you know how many, like I wonder, like how many great photographers um, never got a chance to take a photo at all because the technology was just so inaccessible up until a certain point. And now everyone has the chance and like good photography. It's not like it, it has almost nothing to do with the machine that you're using. It's all about the person that's using it. And so like great photography is always going to be great photography. It doesn't matter what the medium is. doesn't matter what kind of machine they're using, film, digital, a great photograph is a great photograph. Like I've seen, I've seen photographers use very, very expensive cameras to make really shitty photographs. And I've seen photographers use really, really cheap cameras to make really fucking great photographs. There was a photographer back in the day uh, who only took pictures on disposable cameras. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I think in an interview, I'm trying to think of what the guy's name was. I know he had said he liked the challenge of it. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want to be defined by my equipment. Right, right. You know, and I was like, oh, that's kind of profound. Yeah, I think it's um I, I learned like kind of early on, like not only because I'm like I said, not a person of like ex- extravagant means. Um, so there's still a level of technology that I definitely do not have access to, but I learned like pretty early on that like, it's not, it's much better to like, I forget what the quote was. Somebody said it's, it's better to spend your money on books than on gear. So like buy buy photography books, you know, buy photography books by people who you admire, who you like, look at those photos, get inspired by the photos, figure out how to, how to do what they do, like recreate their aesthetic. And let's, you learn through that. It's not from buying a better lens or buying a better machine. I mean, shit, the lens I'm using now is from like the early nineties. 
You know, like I bought, I got it for like 150 bucks at Chuck Rubens <laughs> up the street, and I fell in love with it. Like I, I bought it just because it was like. I was like, oh, 150 bucks. Like, I feel like I got to try this lens. And so I bought it. And like the first time I slapped it on, it was, it was love. Yeah. Um, I had aspirations of being a director. I had looked into going to uh, uh, the Art Institute, which they have a film section. And of course, you, I'm sure you know that. And then Full Sail. I had went, I'd actually right. taken a trip down to Full Sail uh, and looked at what they had to offer. And it's, it's just so expensive. Uh, yeah. It's like 22-month course is like $85,000. Right. It's dope. Don't get it twisted. I mean, you're talking about a full sound studio. Uh, you're talking about all of the equipment. They have $200,000 cameras yeah. that you're using. I mean, it's all top-of-the-line stuff, but it's just like that's not necessarily accessible for everybody. It's not what you need. And also, if I think if you look at a lot of like – at least – a lot of my favorite filmmakers, um, they're ones that either didn't go to film school or went to very little film school. Like Quentin Tarantino has that quote out that there. Where they're, yeah, they're like, oh, did uh, people ask me if I went to film school? And I say, no, I went to films. Like, yeah. Yeah, like, go watch the films, man. You don't need to. Or Robert Rodriguez, like, I read his book um, about like that wild fucking scenario. Um, but like he was in film school and like I remember he said that he came up with this idea to make uh, mariachi for like seven thousand dollars to shoot it all himself cut it all himself and like do all this and like his like his teachers in film school were like you can't you can't do that and he was like well I'm gonna and he did it and then he got and then he got a fucking career out of it and he quit film school um, and I think even in the book like he talks a lot about he's like dude if you go to film school They'll teach you how to make films the way that other people make films. You're going to make the same film as everybody else is making. But if you just go out and make films, you're going to make your own film. Yeah. And yeah. I like I like that approach. I, I think the guerrilla style is, is something that's just really cool and fun and refreshing. And, you know, it was interesting. Uh, they were talking about... I, well, you're going to look this up, I promise. The Hollywood Roundtable uh, conversations really kind of like life changing just because you get to hear these insights from some of the, the just biggest names in the business. And I don't really care about namesake if it doesn't really hold any weight. Mm-hmm. Like if you're just a name for the sake of a name, I don't really give a fuck about that. Right. Uh, but these people's work really speaks volumes. The people like Edgar Wright, people like Danny Boyle. I mean, absolutely love Danny Boyle uh, because he's so he's done so many different things. You know, Twenty Eight Days Later and Slumdog Millionaire, and just his his career is just is so. I don't know, broad, I guess, would be the yeah. word. And broad, varied. Yeah. yeah. And I, I met one of my heroes, and he didn't let me down, thank goodness. They say never meet your heroes, but uh, I met George A. Romero at one of the cons, and, you know, they have hundreds of people in their lives to meet them. Yeah. And, you know, he could easily just kind of tune it out and phone it in, shake hands, kiss babies, right. whatever. Just write the name on the, yeah. on the photo. And- but he didn't do that. A, he was way taller than I ever expected. He's like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. It was pretty weird. He's like looking down at me like, what the fuck? <laughs> and uh, so I, he, I go up and I was like, man, you're one of my heroes, man. He's like, that is awesome. He's like, I love hearing that. He's like, that never gets old. Right. And he's like, then he asked me something I wasn't really expected, uh, expecting. He was like, so what do you what do you want to do? Like, you love film? Like, are you doing anything with it? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, I would love to make films, but, you know, I don't. I'm, I'm kind of in a place where I don't know how to afford the equipment. And he goes, wait, 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 wait. Do you have paper? <laughs> yeah. He's right. like, do you have a pencil? And he goes, right. Yeah. He's like, you know what Hollywood lacks? Good writers. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not shitting on anybody that's in Hollywood, but he's like, I can tell you what you know. And he's like, if you can do that, then you can ride that to bigger and better things. Yeah. I mean, I think like, that's, that's where it starts. Yeah. James Cameron wrote that. He went out notoriously to Hollywood, lived out of his fucking car, and would not sell the whole rights for Terminator. Right. He's like, nope, this is my movie. I'm going to do it. I know how this movie needs to be made. This is my story. This is my baby. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> right? Um, so before we get too far, um, I usually like people to kind of try to lay to rest some of the things that people might assume about you as a photographer, as a director, as someone who's involved with images and video and so on and so forth. What sort of things are you presented with uh, that you might be able to kind of lay to rest? Um I am not entirely sure because I don't know what assumptions I don't know what assumptions people make about about photographers well, or filmmakers or, or me yeah. um, or me personally um, yeah so I don't, I don't really know I don't really know how to dispel let me phrase what, let me help you what assumptions do you have uh well, th- this gets with a lot of things as a, as an actor, just kind of dabbling in it. You know, mm. uh, in the last year or so, I've done three shows in the area, so I'm an actor, but ish. <laughs> yeah, and people don't see it as like a real gig. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I, I would assume that maybe people make the same assumptions or these same assertions. Maybe put those upon you. Maybe when you say, "Yeah, I make films," and you live in Louisville. And they go, oh, well, how's that work? Right, you know, maybe right. that's one of the things that maybe... Yeah, yeah. Do. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of careers in, like, just the arts in general, people look at them as, like, not really career. People look at the arts more as hobbies, at least in this region. When you go to other larger markets, you go, you know, New York or, like, Chicago or Los Angeles out to the West Coast, and it's much more... It's much more common to view the arts as like a viable career path, because um, like me, like growing up, I mean, I don't think I never took any like art classes or anything. It was like I always just assumed that like I was probably gonna go, I was probably gonna go to school, and then I was gonna go to a little bit more school, and then I was gonna get like a job working in an office, or maybe I was gonna like work in like a warehouse or a factory, or maybe drive a truck. And that's like, that's, those were like viable career paths. Like I think my, my family, like I grew up, definitely grew up in a household that that valued art and appreciated art, but it wasn't seen as like, so that's not something that somebody does for a living. Um, so I think that is something, especially like you said, like, Oh, you're a filmmaker and you're in Louisville and like how how does that work? It's like, well, I just I just make movies, you know. I'm, I make films. Yeah. Um, like so far, it's not incredibly lucrative, <laughs> but uh, but we're we're working on it. You know, and that's something. Uh, I'll come back to that round table because it's my current obsession. Uh, but it was perfect because Chad Chadwick Boseman uh, encapsulated one of my feelings on art in general, and he said. You know, when you tell people that you do a thing, so he had been presented with the assumption about him as an actor uh, when he was first starting out. They're like, oh, so you act? And they're like, so what do you do for your real job? And he goes, this is my fucking real job. <laughs> right. And they're like, well, I've never seen you. That that becomes the presumption. That yeah. becomes, well, if I don't know you, then it's clearly you're not successful. Because in the art world, I don't know why this has become a thing, but it's, it's feast or famine. Either you're super successful, and then that's the only way that you should feel uh, enjoyment. And we we know uh, having any understanding of the f- the most famous artists, they're all pretty fucking miserable before they die. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, yeah. Um, that's no gauge of what you mean to the world realistically. Right? Because Chadwick Boseman was like, dude, I just paid all my bills with this acting game that you don't see as a real thing. Right, right. And he's like, and guess what? I really like doing it. Yeah. Do you like going and putting cars together for Ford? Most people are going to say no. Right. And, and if you do, I'm not shitting on those jobs. I made whiskey barrels for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, it was a job. It was work. It was fine. I waited tables for a long time. I still bartend three nights a week. <laughs> yeah, and it's fine. I'm not shitting on any of that. Um, but it's not the thing that I like live for. Right, right. You know, and like getting to do and be involved with something that you live for. And if you can make a living off of that, in my eyes, you're pretty successful. You're doing, you're doing pretty damn good. Yeah. 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 So that's, I, I really want to change that mentality. And as a teacher, you know, I really try and instill that in my students. You know, I'm like, listen, there's a bunch of avenues 
uh, into doing certain things. You know, if you want to be involved in film, you know, you don't have to be an actor. You don't have to be a director. Those aren't the only two options. Right. There's, there's a thousand other gigs that make that. There's a too. lot of different positions out there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the the illustrious key grip. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. I always saw that that in the credits for years. I'm like, what the fuck is a key? What is a key? Grip? What the hell is a gaffer? Yeah. Yeah. They basically like make it all run. They're like, yeah. It's like they're the people that like make everything work. Yeah. They're like anything that needs to be done, and they don't have somebody specifically for that. They kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's awesome. That's pretty essential, yeah. right? Yeah. No, I mean those guys like the the crew, the they're like I mean they're artists in their own right because somebody comes to them and they're like I need this to happen yeah and then they have to figure out with the tools that they're presented with how they can make that happen and not only just make it happen but it has to look good it has to be safe um so you got these budget constraints and then you're meant to make good art. Right, right. You know, because not everybody comes in with these huge, yeah. huge budgets and things. When like I think that. everything, uh, like sort of everything is kind of that way. You're just like trying to figure out it's a puzzle. Like how do I get the, this thing that's in my head? How do I get it? How do I make it real with the limited resources that I have? And I think constraints are, I think constraints are good um, to a certain degree. Yeah. Because um, it does kind of force you to get, like, forces you to get creative, think outside of the box. Um, you know, like, if you just presented somebody with, it's like, hey, here's, like, $100 million. Go, like, make something. You, you have literally everything at your disposal. And, that, like, that in itself can be constraining in, in a weird way. So, like, yeah. con- constraints could be freeing and freedom can be constraining. Well, because and with that money comes expectation. A whole lot and of expectation. There's a lot of oversight. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about these guys at the beginning of their career, uh, you know, you go back and you talk to a lot of these directors, a lot of these actors, and some of the original things that they did, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, I felt more free because I could do what I wanted. Right, right. You know, and if you look at, like, what the Russo brothers did with the Avengers films, yeah, they did a fucking great job. I mean, nobody's going to doubt that. I mean, right. those those films are highly touted, highly reviewed. They're agreed upon being just great films. Uh, you know, go on to make billions of dollars. You know, but they also talk about the pressure. You know, you got people on set like Robert Downey Jr. is making $150 million for that movie. <laughs> right, right. You know, and it's like, so you got to deal with ego. Um, you know, you got to keep everybody happy. You know, and all the, some of the smaller stuff, it's like, well, if you don't, won't do it, I'll just fucking get some money else. Right. Or it's it, uh, a smaller set, I think, definitely fosters a more collaborative environment. You know, the smaller your crew, the easier it is to communicate things to everyone that yeah. need to have things communicated to. And also just to have people like feel more free to like you know if somebody has an idea for something you know like throw it out there um and a lot of times like i think those ideas from like people that maybe normally wouldn't pipe up and give an idea like they can really like they can really take on a life yeah it's funny you said that uh Guillermo del Toro had talked about that he's like a lot of times a director will be the least knowledgeable person about filmmaking on a set. Yeah. And he's like, that might sound counterintuitive to what you would expect. He's like, but what happens? He's like, a director has a year-long track or so uh, on a film. And he's like, it's a pretty quick turnaround now. He's like, before it might have been 18 months, two years. Yeah. And, but now turnarounds are much quicker. And from start to finish, maybe a year. And he said that actors, they might be doing multiple projects simultaneously, Mm -hmm. uh, or they do multiple films in a year. You know, whereas I'm stuck on one film per year that, you know, I got to see through to the end, work through the editing process. They get to do all these different things. So their amount of exposure is dramatically more than what mine is. And he's like, so that's a lot of times why actors can really make the transition to the director's chair really well. Somebody like Clint Eastwood. Right. Like, I dare you to tell me a a bad Clint Eastwood movie. Right. Don't worry, I'll wait. He might be a little kooky, might not agree with him on everything, (laughs) but the dude's a damn good filmmaker. And I think that comes from years of being in the business. Yeah. 
and you see it pretty often. Ben Affleck, thank fucking God he found his way to the director's chair. Yeah. Dude's amazing. Well, it's like, I mean, just seeing the way that things are done and like the more and more that you get exposed to things, the more and more that you learn like from that. I mean, I never thought that I'd be able to like, like direct something. Like I thought maybe I might like write something or like maybe I could be like a cinematographer someday, but like to direct something, I was like, no, I'm not like, I'm not that type of person. But like once I started through photography, you know, I started doing stills on film sets and then just like, we're basically my job is to observe everything that's happening. Um, so then like seeing that, like just seeing the process, you know, enough times I was like, I can do this. It's like, if I can get all of these pieces in like the same, you know, in, in the spot, then I can definitely do this. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, it's not, it's not like, I'm not necessarily the most knowledgeable person when it comes to like all the technical stuff. Um, but I know how I want a story to unfold. I know what I need. I know the pieces that I need to get that story. And I know how to communicate, um, you know, communicate those needs to people that are very, very good at what they do. So I can go to my director of photography and say, I want this shot to look like this. And he knows exactly what he needs to do it, how to do it. Um, I could go to the actress and say, I need you. This is what I need from you in this shot. And she knows what she's doing. Same thing all the way down the line. Sound, props, art department, all of that. Yeah. It, Jason Bateman was talking about that, you know, with his process on Ozarks. And uh, I, I got all this stuff so fresh with all these stories because I've been listening to this stuff for weeks. <laughs> but <clears throat> he said as a director on that show he became a better actor because he would direct himself internally mm -hmm. while he's in a scene right, right he's like I'm shooting this I know the camera's here <clears throat> excuse me it's a tight shot and I know in this tight shot it's not going to catch my finger he's like so I'm supposed to be having a bit of neurosis uh, some neurotic breakdown in this scene and for me I was tapping my finger on my leg but I knew that this was a close shot, so I had to do something different to demonstrate that same emotion that I was doing on a small level. Because he's like, because film is so wonderful because it is those small little details that makes or breaks performance. Yeah. He's like, so I knew that maybe I should shuffle my collar or put my hand up around my neck or fidget around my ear or something like that because I knew that that shot was was tight. Yeah. And. So it's kind of interesting. It's, it's like so many things in life where you think that if everybody did something, they would understand it a little bit better. People would be nicer to servers and waiters if they had done it themselves. Right, right. You know, and it, I think that, that that tends to be the truth. You know, as a teacher, I think a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of things that people assume about us and take for granted with us and uh, a lot of blame that they put on us that isn't necessarily justifiable. Um, so... As in, within the film industry, I think that that's great. I, for me, I would love to do every part of it. I would love to do the lighting. I would love to do the sound. I would love to do all of that stuff because I think that everything... You don't want to be a PA. <laughs> no. You don't want to do that. I just feel like everything that you would do would give you some sort of intimate piece of knowledge that would make you better right, in every right. aspect. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a philosophy that I have just about everything that I do and like life in general is like, I'm, I'm always, I always want to be learning, you know, like I'm, I'm just obsessed with experiencing new things, learning new things because every little thing that I learn, even, even small things that might seem like not important or not applicable to like anything career wise sometimes can turn out to be like very applicable to to what you're doing so yeah just always keep just always learn keep learning yeah I, I like that and I think that really applies to anything like I knew I, you know being in a band I didn't play an instrument but I didn't want to be that lead singer who like who was like right right didn't right. do anything I disconnected my microphone and walked off stage it was a good show guys right. didn't help unload equipment uh, so I became the drum tech basically 
so I would die. He was the only one in any of the bands I had. They were the only person that they trusted outside of themselves to set up their shit was me. Yeah. And I knew that was something I could do. You know, I would love my guitar players. That's its whole own beast. You know? Yeah. yeah. They have their own little things that they're going to do because an amp never sounds the same. Especially two amps. I don't know any of my music fans, but two amps are so fucking temperamental. They sound great. They sound very warm and very rich. Uh, but depending on how hot or cold it is, you know, they're right, right. they're a wicked beast. So I let the guitars fuck with their own stuff. The drums were easy. I'm like, I'm, you show me how it goes and I'll do it. So I try to be as useful as I can. And I think understanding your limits is probably one of the greatest strengths. That I've ever yeah, understanding your limits and then also like trying to like just bear, like push past the limits but not too far past the limits. Because you know if you go too far past the limits you're going to be completely out of your depth and like you're just not going to be able to get it done. But if you can just push yourself just past your limit then that's that's how you learn. That's how you grow. Um, it's that adage fake it till you make it. Oh definitely. You know never let somebody know you know just how much you don't know yeah, yeah. You know, but be willing to admit also right. when you you know you have somebody on set that it, you know has that expertise, you know, so that you can pull them in. I mean, you're only as good as the people you that's, surround yourself. That's the reason you have those people, right? Is yeah. Because they're they know a lot about it and they're really good at it. So when you don't know something, they're probably going to know it. Unless you're Kubrick, <laughs> <laughs> you know, who's like the guy that fucking knows everything about everything, right? Right, and he's just an absolute absolute masterclass and no, there had to be something he didn't know there was something yeah we don't know what it we is we don't know what it is we're never going to know what it is yeah but there was there was at least one thing that he didn't know yeah and somebody he killed whoever it was that <laughs> let that, that secret out <laughs> so I'm curious um, what is the thing that you're most proud of as far as photography as far as your uh, your stint in film what's the thing you're most proud of I mean Mujo the the first episode of Mujo is so far the thing that I'm most proud of having ever produced what did it feel like when you saw your product up on Amazon available for everybody oh it was it was really it was really fucking cool Um, because it's like I don't know it's just like like I woke up and I got like the email that was like uh, like oh you were approved and like you're on Amazon it's live and like I immediately like turned on my TV and like searched for Mujo on Amazon Prime and like it popped up and like there's like there's the image and you click it and it, and it comes on it was just like yeah, it was a pretty amazing feeling how long how long was the process putting that uh, together putting putting the whole thing together yeah. like the episode for it was probably about a year and a half from like the time from like the time I like started writing it until we actually like finished it and put it out there wow yeah for 50 Essentially, fifteen minutes of action well, for like film. eighteen and a half minutes of, of runtime with yeah. credits and yeah. introduction. Yeah, and that's of course. I mean, that's people. You know, a crew of ten people was like the largest crew that we had. Um, and you're talking about people that are like, I mean, we just got together whenever we could. You know, we're all working. We're all working regular jobs. Um, you know, we raised the money, most of the money we raised through a crowdfunding campaign. And then I kicked up a little bit of money of my own, whatever I could afford. And, uh, yeah, we just made it. It was, it was just a slow, it was a slow, but steady process where like, I was just trying for like a year and a half. My goal really just every day was like every day I want to make some sort of forward progress on this project. Whether it be like whether it be like an inch or a mile, and there were some days where you know, hey, I sent out one email, <laughs> you know, I sent out one email that might get us somewhere. That's a little bit of forward progress. And then there were days where like like shoot days where we get, you know, where we work for eight nine hours, and we get a that's that's a mile day. Um, yeah, so I think it was just like keeping that. Keeping that forward progress. 
did you find that that slow, arduous process was the hardest part? Yes, I'm very impatient. I'm a really, really impatient person. So it, it is very hard to, you, you know, you've got this idea in your head and even now, like I've got, you know, I've got like the whole like story mapped out in my head and I'm like, I want to do it now, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I'm constrained. I have to wait. I have to wait. I have to wait on, you know, I have to wait on raising the money and then I have to wait on getting everything together and getting everybody's schedules together. And then once you actually film it, then you have to wait on, you know, everything you got to wait on editing and then you got to wait on color grading. Then you got to wait on sound and then none of it's ever right the first time. So then you got to go back and like redo it and then you got to wait some more and it's, it's a lot of waiting which is not great for me. I think I, um, I think I got into photography. Like one of the main reasons was because of the immediacy of it, you know, it's a, uh, it's like a lazy man's art, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't have the patience to sit there at a painting for 30 hours and, and do that. Like I want to snap the photo and move on. Um, but now, yeah, like with film, I do find myself in a little bit, a little bit slower process. It's, faster than it would have been yeah um but it's definitely not fast enough for me so does that does that lack of patience does it does it ever create issues with you and trusting in other people and the process because it is so much of a trusting bit uh you're most uh and so referenced it as a director you're basically the father of a, of a project. Yeah, yeah. You're the dad. <laughs> Everybody, they might not necessarily need you, but they're seeking your approval. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do definitely have to rely on other people to, to do a lot of things. And that does... It does kind of exacerbate the, the impatient, the impatient part of me. But... I just wonder if it's hard, you know, being patient with others. Does, does it ever create? Do you like, have to yes, step back from yourself. Like yes and no, because there are there are definitely times where you're like, oh my god, like I've got that. Like I just want, like I gave you the thing, I told you what to do with it. Like just, just do it and get it back to me. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I'm kind of as impatient as I am. I think I'm also. I think I'm also patient. Like when it, when it really comes down to it, like I don't, I think I'm good at keeping a cool head, I guess, where like I am impatient, but it doesn't, it doesn't really manifest itself. Um, I don't get, I don't get super short with people or abrupt with people or, Hey, where the fuck is that thing that, that I tell you, I just like, and just gently encourage, yeah, encourage the process to, to come along. It, it's a fine line, you know. I, I've only directed the the plays that I do with my students, uh, so we do a series of short plays, and uh, I let them. Uh, I assign directors in class, you know. So we had four four productions and a director for each for each group and then of course I'm micromanaging outside of that because they're kids and they don't necessarily know how it works right and I find that it's so much giving everybody enough attention so that they feel valuable uh, while also giving that that encouraging nudge mm-hmm. that they need to be like hey this, there's a timeline for this. This assignment's due. Blah blah blah. And I, I assume that it's probably similar when you have with yourself as an independent filmmaker. I wonder if that's difficult because you don't have, uh, you know, a corporation coming in and telling you, "Hey, you have to have it done by now." Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there is like it's it's easy to get like really lackadaisical and just be like. Like, I mean, we don't have a deadline on this thing, so let's just kind of like, eh, do we really need to finish it? Or like, that's how, I think that's how a lot of projects get abandoned. So yeah. you do have to have a certain amount of like drive to just be like, no, like we're, I'm getting this thing done. Hell or high water. <laughs> like it's, it's getting done. Um, but I think also like, I don't know. I've just got like, 
like my mind like moves a lot. Like I'm constantly thinking about 30 different things. Um, and so to be able to have those, one of the greatest things about like directing, especially like being on set is that like there are 40,000 things going on. So like rather than, rather than my mind just being occupied with a whole bunch of bullshit, like I'm occupied completely with this project and I'm like just constantly thinking about all the pieces and how the pieces are going to fit together and how they go and how do we get to there and there's a problem over there. All right, we got to fix that. And Yeah. Uh, Mel Gibson had talked about that too. Um, he recently done Hacksaw Ridge, you know, which was up for Best Picture. And I mean, rightfully so, it's a great film. And he talked about the differences between that and Braveheart mm-hmm. uh, in regards to like how many things you have to keep in your brain at once. Right, right. You know, because he said he's he's in Braveheart, so he's on horseback riding from camera to camera to see the shots. <laughs> right. And he's like, you have 5,000 extras. Right, right. And he's like, you're only going to get one shot at this tank. Right. You know, we're going to ride off into that battle sequence and the likelihood of getting everybody back together and willing to do this and the extras that are making basically the food they got that day. Right, right. To want to keep doing stuff for you. He's like, you can take their love for you so far. Right, you know? right. And he's like, but the difference in that versus, you know, the digital era now that we have you know, I have everything here on one screen right. of all the camera shots that I have right there in front of me. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's like, but there is that thing. He's like, just like you said, he's like, you have 300 different things coming at you. Everybody wants a piece of your top because mm-hmm. that's the gig. Right. Like, right. you're kind of keeping it all together. And, you know, that's what I, when I connected to my students, they're like, I can't wait to tell people what to do. And I go, that's 100% how it is. Right. 100% not. <laughs> right. As like, you are a facilitator. It's like, you need to show up and basically facilitate all the strengths of all those people and like like I said, make them feel important. You know, and it's it's not I'm not degrading anybody. We all right. want to fucking feel important. Right. You wanna be like that yeah, that was a good job. You did a good job there. And then be critical when you need to be. But if you're always critical, you can end up in a situation with, you know, with what you hear about people like maybe James Cameron. Right. You know, coming back to him, you know, he's kind of difficult. You hear that time and time again, but it works. Right, right. You know, so and people, they're like you know, everybody's got like every director's kind of got like their own different you style. know style yeah. you know I mean I know there's like all those stories out there about like David Fincher and doing like 40 takes like yeah. every like minimum like minimum 40 takes and like I couldn't imagine doing 40 I would be so bored with that scene Me too. By, by like take 10 that I would I would just like ugh um as an actor that would be grueling very grueling. I don't know that I could give you 40 good takes. I think for everybody it would be grueling. I mean, aside from maybe, like, people... I, I mean, I should say, like, being being a stills person wouldn't be very gru- grueling for a stills person. You'd mostly just be sitting around. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, for, 40 takes sounds sounds awful. Well, you can go to the other, the other end, too, where uh, you come with... Uh, uh, William Friedkin, you know, with what he did in The Exorcist, where he ends up, oh God, what is her name? Uh, Linda Blair's mom. Why am I not spacing on her name? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, she had permanent, permanent spine damage and from the mechanism that kept pulling her back, throwing her away from the bed. Right, right. Doing that over and over. Uh, and then Kubrick is famous for doing uh, terrible things. Of course, uh, Malcolm McDowell with that, that eye mechanism that's holding his eyes open yeah. uh, in a clockwork orange. I mean, just putting his people like legit in the shit. Right, right. You know, to feel a certain thing. Or, you know, I mean, there's a, t- a ton of them. Saving Private Ryan. You know, the opening sequence of that, you know, they had to go through basic training. Right. Uh, all the cats had to go through an abbreviated basic training, three weeks. And Tom Hanks had to talk them off the ledge, you know, right, for, right. for Spielberg. You know, and it's just, 
you know, there's all these sacrifices that you have to make. That's why I think you had talked about this, I think, before we had actually uh, started recording. You had said that there's so many pieces incorporated into the art of filmmaking. You said every sense except maybe a tactile. Right, uh, right. So that maybe, but the, the guy that I argue the goose cloths. Right. You can't, you, know? you can't taste the movie. Yeah. It, but you hear it, you see it, you feel it. You most definitely feel it. Yeah. Especially if it's good. Yeah. You know. So, I like ending these conversations with... I like to know what inspires people. I think that that's, that's one of the, the beautiful things of humanity, you know, because a lot of us might not even know when we're inspiring people or you might not know what events are inspiring people. So I'm curious to know what brought you to photography and film. I mean, as far as inspiration goes, I think just like the entire world, the, the world around me, I mean, being, being a photographer or being a filmmaker, it's it's a visual medium. And so you're constantly, like every day as I'm just going about my day, like I'll see, I might see something and it'll just like, like I'll, I'll think about, I'll get a little frame in my head and be like, ah, start like developing a story that goes along. Like, what is this setting? What's going on? Who's going to come in and what's, what's going to happen here? So I think... I take inspiration from like literally everything that, that happens to me all day, every day. Um, but as far as like inspiration, like what got me like into stuff, um, I mean, God, I was a kid that grew up in, you know, the eighties and nineties. I mean, it was the, the heyday of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and like all of those guys and imaginations running rampant and, you know, these, all these revolutionary jumps in filmmaking. And it was such an exciting, such an exciting time for, uh, for movies. I mean, Jesus, I remember, um, Jurassic Park, like when Jurassic Park came out, man, I convinced my parents to take me to see Jurassic Park six times in a theater. And then like, and then I saved up my allowance when it was coming out on VHS, saved up my allowance, bought the VHS tape and I watched it every day for like a month solid. Like it just like, just blew me away. Um, and it was the same thing with Star Wars. Like I told you earlier, like I don't remember the first time I saw Star Wars. It, it just like kind of always was there. Um, and then like learning more and more about like, you know, learning more and more about the story of Star Wars, but also the story of how Star Wars was made and like George Lucas and the, just, just the whole process. I got like so enraptured with, with the process, like not only the the storytelling and not only the film itself but the process of making the film yeah I don't know that I I, I fell in love with process probably later uh, I think I was in high school when I really started appreciating shots and I started appreciating lighting and I started appreciating some of the more finer points yeah you know because you know I, as you can tell I'm definitely I'm a film nerd. Right, right, that right. Stuff. And it's, you know, and for me, it was more about the story for a long time. That's, uh, I have an English degree for a reason. Right. You know, I read anything I could get my hands on, uh, you know, when I was growing up in a house. Um, and I don't realize just, I, I talked to a friend the other day, uh, and it's something I kind of take for granted that both of my parents were avid readers. You know, my dad would tear through a novel or two a week. Yeah. And so yeah. would my mom. Uh, and he read the newspaper every single day. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I was just accustomed to. I thought it was normal. You know, so I read the paper. I read books. You know, I read was reading things I probably shouldn't have read uh, way too early. But so I'm okay-ish. And uh, so I, I think it's, it's interesting to see how that appreciation for something that I've always loved and to see how it's, it's so malleable and see how it's changed over the years. Um, and, and to realize it's not, not everybody's like us. 
Not yeah. everybody appreciates <laughs> every little thing. Like, right, right. shut the fuck up. Watch <laughs> right. the movie. Like, I will legit pause a movie, rewind it, go back to the shot that I thought was good and pause it. And I'll go look at that. My wife's like, what? Just fucking let it play. Right, right. I'm like, but do you see that? Right. You know, it's it just... Yeah, no, I'm also, I'm I'm a rewatcher too. I'll watch, I find something, a movie that I really like, I'll rewatch it just over and over and over again. Just just soaking it in, every little thing. I, I think that's what, what people, like real fans, like with music and things of that nature, like we find ourselves just getting sucked up in something. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I watch uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. I can't tell you how many times I watched Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street. Or uh, I saw Django Unchained five times in theater. Nice. You know, and it's three yeah. hours long. Yeah. You know, and it just... People that you can tell love their respective things. Right. You know, and it, it's just always impressive to see a master of any craft. Oh, yeah. I think when somebody when somebody really, really loves what they're doing, like, it, it shows in the world. 100%. Yeah. Well, Steven, I appreciate your time, man. Like, uh, it's been good catching up. I, I know we haven't talked too many times since high school, so it's good to kind of catch up. And no, it's been, what, 20, 20 years now Something since, like that. since high school graduation. Yeah, so it's, nice. pretty, it's pretty well. Uh, is there anything that you would like to promote? Uh, promote? Where can people find your work? How can uh, people get a hold of you? Yes, please, please watch. If you haven't seen the first episode of Mujo, please watch. It. Uh, you can find it on Amazon Prime. All you have to do is search for uh, Mujo M U J O. Um, there's also a website out there, MujoBox.com, um, where you can find pretty much any information you want. You can also watch the episode on the website for free if you don't have Amazon Prime. Um, and then follow us, you know, look at, look at us on Instagram. We're making the second episode. We've got, we've got about five minutes of it, uh, filmed so far, like the first five minutes, which in a 18 minute episode is almost a third, uh, yeah. you know, so we've, we've made some progress even during the pandemic on, on the second episode, we're getting ready to release a trailer for the second episode and then hopefully raise the rest of the money that we need to make the rest of the episode, put it out there. And then we'll see if, uh, and then we'll see if we can make enough money to make episode three. <laughs> right. Rinse, lather, repeat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about your photography? Where can they find that? Yeah. You can check it out. SteveSquall.com. That's S Q U A L L. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for your time, brother. Thank Appreciate you. it.